Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning uh, in front of you, I want to encourage you to open it to Revelation chapter 7. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and today we are beginning a four-week series on Advent. The series is called A Better Christmas. I actually mentioned that title, A Better Christmas, a week or so ago when we sent out our last sort of COVID video update. And I said there that I think that title might be a bit of a hard sell this year. It might not feel like you can have a better Christmas. 2020 has been a rough year, hasn't it? Every one of us has experienced some kind of loss This year, some of those losses uh, might seem small in the grand scheme of things, but when you start to add everything up, it can feel like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? All of these little losses start to pile up, and Christmas will be different this year. I mean, there'll be no travel, no company Christmas party, none of the usual Christmas in Vancouver traditions. No Christmas Eve service at the Clova, and in all likelihood, Christmas dinner will just be you and your bubble. So you're feeling encouraged already, I can tell. You can just sort of sense it through the uh, internet. But in spite of all that, I actually think this can be a better Christmas. You know, one of the traditions in our house every year at this time of year is to watch Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch stole Christmas. You have all seen it. You all know the climactic scene in that short story. After the Grinch has spent Christmas Eve stealing every possible remnant of Christmas from the town of Whoville, he is startled on Christmas morning when he hears the familiar Christmas chorus still being sung by the town's residents. And he's puzzled by all of this. And as he muses about it, he says, it came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from the store. Maybe Christmas, he thought, means a little bit more. Now, as as Christians, we understand that Christmas does mean a little bit more. We understand that Christmas means a lot more, in fact. And so this year, as we prepare for Christmas, we want to focus our attention on the themes of Advent, hope, peace, love, and joy. But this time around, we want to focus not so much on our waiting for them, but on how Jesus is a better hope, a better peace, a better love, and a better joy. And I want to encourage you to engage with us together as a church Uh, In the midst of this series, as we prepare for Christmas, we will be producing content for you uh, each weekday between now and Christmas Eve. And I know it requires some discipline, but I would encourage you just to hit up our website each day, crossridgechurch.ca slash Advent, and you'll find all the information you need. You might want to just bookmark that, but we would encourage you to participate along with us as we get set for Christmas. And our prayer for you this year, as we engage in this series, our prayer is, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So having said all that, by way of introduction, let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 7, and let's look specifically at how Jesus gives us a better hope. I'm going to read verses 9 to 17. This is God's word, and this is what it says. After this, I looked, and behold... A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, parachuting into the book of Revelation like this is a bit jarring. So I do need to give you a little bit of background as to what it is we are reading. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. And it was written to comfort or to encourage Christians who were in the midst of great suffering or great persecution. And the book is presented to us with scenes that both take place on earth and scenes that take place in heaven. And what we find in the book of Revelation, we find descriptions of things that have taken place, things that are taking place, and things that will take place. And the verses we just read are verses that describe a future scene in heaven when we will be in the presence of Jesus forever. And this is a hope-filled passage. So I want to draw your attention to four reasons why Jesus is a better hope. Why this picture of heaven gives us a better hope. And the first reason is because Jesus offers hope for a divided world. Verse 9 begins like this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude. So let me just stop there for a minute. A great multitude. Do you remember what that was like? I mean, do you remember what it was like to gather in a crowd of hundreds or even thousands of people? I have a couple great multitude memories from sporting events that I have attended. I've attended two football games at Notre Dame Stadium in South Bend, Indiana, on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. College football in the States is an experience like no other. And I was there along with 80,794 other cheering fans. The marching band, the fight song, the touchdown celebrations, it's a spectacle. And you just kind of get swept up in it all. I also have a distinct memory 
of being in the United Center in Chicago for a playoff game between the Blackhawks and the Calgary Flames. Now, the United Center is large in terms of hockey stadiums. It seats 21,000 people. It's also known for being very loud, and I have never heard a louder or more enthusiastic version of the Star-Spangled Banner. Now, this was back in 2009, before it was controversial to sing the national anthem with such vigor. I'm not American, and I was moved by it. There's just something about a great multitude of people all focused on the same thing. And you may have experienced that same thing, maybe at a concert or at some other type of large event. Thousands of people singing or cheering in unison. But all of that will pale in comparison to what we will one day experience in heaven, this great multitude that no one could number standing before the throne of God. But it's not just the number of people that strikes John as he sees this. It's the makeup of the great multitude. Verse 9, in its totality, reads like this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. This great multitude is from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, all of them are united in their praise of God. What a great picture. And this is what I mean by saying that Jesus gives us a better hope. I gave you a couple of of examples of my sort of great multitude sporting experiences. Thousands of fans united in cheering on their team. But I've also attended sporting events where rival fans have shown up. I mean, they're not there to cheer for the home team. They're wearing the wrong jersey. And a lot of times that's just in good fun. Maybe most of the time it's just in good fun. But every once in a while it turns a bit ugly. Fights break out in the stands. People have been killed for wearing the wrong jersey, supporting the wrong team. It's not just sporting events where you can see that kind of division in our world. We're not just divided over what sports teams we cheer for. Our world seems especially divided right now. We're divided by our politics. Political convictions often carry deep-seated hostility towards the other side. We are divided over how best to respond to the current coronavirus crisis. I mean, we're all united in the fact that we just want to see this whole ordeal done with and over. But we're divided over what to do in the meantime. Should our highest priority be protecting the vulnerable or should it be trying to keep our fragile economy alive? Now, I'm aware you can try to do both. But you wouldn't know that from listening to the kind of discourse that takes place on social media. Battle lines are drawn between those saying, you're trying to kill grandma, and those saying, you're going to destroy my family's business and livelihoods. There's much that can divide us. There's much that divides us in the world right now. And as we look at this passage, we can't help be reminded or help but be reminded that we also live in a world that's divided by racial and ethnic differences. But in this passage, none of those differences seem to matter. No one in the great multitude is focused on who else is there. 
everyone in that great multitude is fixated on Jesus. They're caught up in the wonder of the greatness of the one who sits on the throne. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's fine, I guess, for when we get to heaven. But what about now? Is there hope for our divided world right now? And I want to say that we can begin to experience a better hope for a divided world now. In fact, we're meant to. You know, the ancient world was a divided place. Many of those divisions were based in ethnic or national differences. They had their own form of tribalism and identity politics. Everyone was classified by virtue of which group they belonged to or which group they did not belong to. The birth of the church obliterated those differences. Here's what we read in the book of Acts about the day that the church began. Acts chapter 2, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. See, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost demonstrated a kind of unity that can only exist by supernatural means. That's the better hope that Jesus gives us. And this unity amidst diversity was characteristic of the early church. In Acts chapter 13, we have the record of the first church planting initiative. And here's what it says. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This passage has something to teach us about church planting, but it's a fascinating list of individuals. We know from elsewhere in the book of Acts that Barnabas was from Cyprus. Simeon was called Niger, which is the Latin word for black. Lucius was from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya in North Africa. Menaean, it says, was part of Herod's court and family, so he was from a completely different social class. And Saul, who became Paul, was from Tarsus in Cilicia. This was an ethnically and culturally diverse group, but they were united in their love for Jesus and their desire to share that good news with others. That's what the church is. Now, this is not to whitewash history and say that there have not been times or places where that kind of unity amidst diversity has not been evident. But it is to say that the gospel wipes out all of the cultural divisions that we gravitate to. And this is true today. 
You know, it's become commonplace in our academic institutions and elsewhere to associate Christianity with Western white imperialism. Nothing could be further from the truth. Most of the world's Christians are neither Western nor white. The church, in fact, is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of human history. So where can you find hope for a divided world? Well, we find it in Jesus. We find it in the gospel that proclaims there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is a better hope. Second reason we can say that Jesus gives us a better hope is because he offers hope for sinful people. So you have this great multitude. They can't be counted. They're from every nation, tribe, and people, and language group. And in John's vision, they're wearing white robes. Now I'm going to come back to that in a minute. They're holding palm branches. They're crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So much gets communicated in their very short or seemingly simple expression of praise. Salvation belongs to our God. Maybe the most obvious thing is that they recognize that they needed saving. And if you were to go back and read chapter 6 of Revelation, you will see that what they needed saving from was the judgment and wrath of God. But their short burst of praise also indicates that they understand that salvation is by grace. Salvation belongs to our God. In other words, this is not something we do for ourselves. This is something God does for us. It's his salvation. When we want to express the doctrine of salvation rightly, we say that salvation is by grace through faith. And that's what we see here. Salvation belongs to our God. These are people who have placed their faith in Christ, in God's act of salvation through Jesus. I want to circle back to the white robes for a minute because the white robes come up twice in this passage. They come up here in John's description and then again when one of the elders or angels asks John to identify those in white robes. Now John's not entirely sure, right? When he's asked the question, he says, oh, you know, sir. And so the angel, the elder, fills in the gaps. And here's what he says. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. I'm going to come back to that description of the great tribulation later, but I want to focus on these white robes for a minute. Now, the Bible contains what we would call a meta-narrative. That is, there is one overarching story that runs through the whole thing from the beginning to the end. And that one overarching story is that God saves sinners. And we can trace that storyline a number of different ways. But one of the the ways we can trace it is through a number of what I would call, for lack of a better term, the Bible's fashion statements. This begins all the way back at the creation account. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 2. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? Their nakedness symbolized their innocence before God and before one another. 
We know that Adam and Eve gave in to temptation. They ate the forbidden fruit, and here was the result. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So when Adam and Eve sinned, the very first thing they did was to try to cover their nakedness, their guilt, their shame. And Genesis 3 goes on to show that they tried to do this. They tried to hide from one another, and they tried to hide from God. But their fig leaves proved to be an inadequate covering. And so God actually made a covering for them in his grace. The end of Genesis 3, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That is the story of the Bible in miniature. And the prophet Isaiah wants to describe our sinful condition. He does so using a fashion statement of sorts. He says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So we are sinful. We try to cover that sin with some manner of good works or righteous deeds. But when we stand before God, our best efforts end up with us in filthy garments before him. In order for us to stand before God, we need an entirely new set of clothes. And there's a picture of what God does for us in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah has a vision of Joshua. He's the high priest, and he serves in the vision as sort of a stand-in for Israel or a stand-in for us. And here's what it says. It says, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God saves sinners. Now, most of us aren't making a lot of fashion statements these days. I mean, it's hard to do that when your quarantine wardrobe consists of sweatpants and a hoodie, right? But here in Revelation chapter 7, we read about the Bible's ultimate fashion statement. This great multitude were all wearing white robes. According to what we know from historical records, there were five times in the ancient world, where people would wear white robes. When a Roman bondservant was freed from slavery, the white robes symbolized their emancipation or their freedom. Brides wore white as a symbol of their purity. White robes were also worn by champions in military battles. Laurels would be placed on their head. They would be paraded around the city in their dazzling white robes. People going to religious festivals often wore white robes as symbols of celebration. And lastly, priests wore white robes to show that they were set apart in their service to God. Well, there's a sense in which the white robes we will wear in heaven will symbolize all of those things and more. We've been freed from our slavery to sin and death. We've been made pure. We will stand before God without a single blemish or stain. We will wear white for the victory that we've been part of. 
Heaven will be an endless celebration, and so we will wear white. And like the priests who were set apart to serve God, we will wear white because we will spend eternity serving our great God. But the reminder from this passage is not just that we will wear white robes. The most shocking thing is how our robes are made white. Verse 14 says this. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That seems like a strange transaction, doesn't it? Blood is not the secret cleansing agent found in Tide Pods. Blood leaves clothes indelibly stained. But this is not ordinary blood. It's the blood of the lamb. Philip Ryken describes it like this. He says, through some mysterious, miraculous act of divine chemistry, this crimson tide makes us clean and spotless by washing our robes in the blood of Christ. In other words, by going to the cross and asking Jesus to apply his perfect sacrifice to our filthy sins, we are justified in the sight of God. That is good news. It's good news for sinful people like you and me. You know, Lady Macbeth was one of the characters or is one of the characters in a Shakespeare play. She plays a role in the murder of King Duncan and she becomes the Queen of England. But she cannot rid herself of the pangs of guilt. And so she's constantly washing her hands in a vain attempt to remove her guilt. See, without the purifying blood of Jesus, we're all in the same deadly predicament as Lady Macbeth. Our hands or our garments are stained with the blood of our sinfulness. And as much as we want these damn spots to be out, all the perfumes of Arabia cannot deal with them. And the good news is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God saves sinners. He clothes us in his righteousness. A third reason Jesus gives us a better hope is because he offers hope for suffering people. Listen to verses 13 and 14. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So John says that these individuals, this great multitude, are those coming out of the great tribulation. Now, biblical scholars have different interpretations for the identity of those coming out of the great tribulation. Who are they? Some identify them as Christian martyrs. Others think they're to be identified with those who make it through the special period of persecution in the end times immediately before the return of Christ. Now, both of those are possibilities. But the reference to those coming out of the Great Tribulation could also just be a reference to what all of us experience as Christians. Listen to how John introduces himself in the book of Revelation. This is what he says. I, John, your brother and partner in the Tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John identifies him himself as a partner in the tribulation. 
Now, whether John means to distinguish here between the tribulation, the trouble or pressure that we all experience as Christians in the world, and the great tribulation, the intense period of persecution and suffering in the end, is a larger question about the way we read the book of Revelation. I'm not going to get into all the details about that. But what I will say is this. It's important to understand for our purposes is that what John says here, he says to all Christians of all times and all places. See, the reality of life on earth is that while we may be saved by grace, we are not saved from suffering. This is the pattern we see throughout the New Testament. The pattern is first tribulation, then glorification. This was the pattern for Jesus' life. First the cross, then the crown. So when Paul and Barnabas sought to preach the gospel in the ancient cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, they encountered opposition. And here's how Luke summarizes their experience in the book of Acts. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. In a similar way, the Apostle Peter speaks to our suffering or our tribulations. Like this, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I'm not saying this to discourage you, but to prepare you. John was writing to Christians who were already dealing with the kind of trouble and tribulation that is the common experience of Christians throughout history. And the words of comfort he gives them are also the words of comfort he gives us. Verses 15 to 17 describe the destiny of every believer in Christ. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is similar to the promise that's found near the end of the book of Revelation, where it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, this is the better hope we have. We might be suffering now, but there will come a day where all of that suffering comes to an end. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more environmental calamities. The sun shall not strike you, nor any scorching heat. No more pain, no more tears, no more crying. And best of all, there will be no more death. If you need comfort this morning, the comfort can be found in the hope that is ours in Jesus. Jesus gives us a better hope. He gives a better hope to those who are suffering. The final aspect of hope I want to highlight for you is that there is hope for weary sheep. 
Verse 17 says this, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The image of that verse is quite striking. It tells us that our shepherd will guide us to streams of living water. That in in and of itself is an amazing promise. We will be forever satisfied with what we experience in heaven. But the verse actually tells us more than that. The verse says that the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. That's not the usual picture we have of a shepherd, is it? But our shepherd is one who has experienced all that we have experienced and all that we will experience. He experienced hunger and thirst and scorching heat and temptation and pain and tears and even death. And the great promise or hope of heaven is not just that we will experience a world without pain. It's not just that we will experience the opportunity to be reunited with family and friends and loved ones. The great hope of heaven is that we will be forever in the presence of Jesus, our shepherd. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. This is the hope that we have. Sometimes when we think about heaven, we just think about all those maybe joys that could be ours. You know, the, the streets of gold, the never-ending feast. But the most important aspect of heaven, where our hope really is centered, is it's centered on the person of Jesus, the Lamb, who will be our shepherd. I remember John Piper making this statement a number of years ago. He said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? And you know, a lot of people would answer that question, yes. But our hope is much better than that. Our hope is found in the person of Jesus. It says, he who, shel- he who sits on the throne will shelter them, shelter us with his presence, and that the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. So our hope is found in a person. It's found in the person of Jesus. Let's enter into that hope as we think about Christmas this year. I want to pray for us. Father, we want to thank you for the hope that lives within us, the hope that you give us, the hope that is ultimately based in what Jesus has done for us and the fact that one day we will stand before him in this great, with this great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group, and we will hold palm branches and we will sing and shout, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And Lord, we look forward to that day when the Lamb is in our midst or we're in His midst and we experience the presence of Jesus. God, would you fill our hearts with hope because of that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.